Welcome to the Find These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century. It is a project born out of my conviction that doing so requires an interdisciplinary and intersectional approach to understanding our complex world. I'm your host, Jerea Yub, and in these episodes, I bring you conversations in the intersection of politics, history, philosophy, culture, science, and all the fun stuff in between. The following episode was first published for monthly Patreon supporters. To become a monthly Patreon supporter, please head out to patreon.com slash times or check the website for other methods. You can become a supporter for as little as $1 a month. And if you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and family and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The music of this podcast is by Tarabit. Here's the episode. So this is a conversation with Camila Nobrega and Joanna Varon. We primarily talked about a paper that they published for Global Information Society Watch entitled Big Tech Goes Greenwashing, Feminist Lenses to Unveil New Tools in the Master's Houses. This is one of those conversations that I struggle to summarize, but I'll do my best. So we spoke about power structures, big tech, and what kind of future we want. We discussed the issues around technosolutionism through feminist lenses. Uh, we asked questions such as who has the ability to consent? What are we sustaining and what are we developing when we talk of sustainable development? What is green data? What do we even mean by the good life and so on and so forth? We discussed things like gatopardismo, meaning essentially proposing changes, quote-unquote changes, while reinforcing existing power structures. We brought up topics like monocultures of minds uh, and other issues surrounding uh, extractivism and data colonialism. We focused quite a bit on Brazil, as they're both from Brazil. Stuff like colonialism, land rights, environmental justice, feminist movements, uh, activists at risk, the far right, obviously Bolsonaro's regime, and so on and so forth. As I said, this is one of those conversations that is about many things at once. And as usual, I would love to hear from you. If you have any comments, uh, feedback, criticism, you know, what have you, please feel free to reach out either by email or on Patreon. So that's it for me, folks. Thank you for listening and take care. I'm Camila Nobrega. I'm from from Brazil, from Rio de Janeiro, more specifically. And uh, I'm currently based in Berlin. I'm a journalist working with uh, topics related to, to the so-called environment for, I think, more than 15 years now. And basically fostering feminist lenses with the idea of like unveil power relations behind conflicts involving human and non-human. Um, so yeah, more specifically the case of mega projects such as hydropower dams, that affect our bodies and territories. And uh, yeah, so I'm creating the project Beyond the Green right now. There will be a website, there will be a website soon. And currently I'm a PhD candidate at the Free University of Berlin, in the Department of Political Science, in the uh, gender division. Hi, hello everyone, I'm Joana Varon. I'm executive directress, founded Coding Rights, which is an organization working to expose and trying to redress some power imbalances that are embedded into technologies or in the deployment of technologies. For that, we use also feminist lenses to discuss technology and human rights, 
Uh, I'm also fellow at the CAR Center for Human Rights Policies at the Harvard Kennedy School. So I work on, uh, I have some foots on academia, but mostly focused on uh, applied research for activism and policy change in the field of tech, feminism and human rights. Well, thank you both for uh, chatting with me today. I will be primarily uh, discussing a paper that you co-wrote for the Global Information Society Watch. And I'll just read the title, uh, Big Tech Grows Greenwashing, uh, Feminist Lenses to Unveil New Tools in the Master's Houses. So let's just start with some presentation, if that's okay. Just like talk to us a bit about the piece, like what is it about? What are its main arguments? Well, okay, I can start. <laughs> I think the title also really really helps a lot to we really tried to be very precise in the title and when we say big tech goes green washing we want to focus in this concept of like green washing and the main thing in the piece is actually it it's a result of a process between us two and basically, we are focusing on some gaps that we see both in in the debates, the, the debates on not just the debates, but the processes uh, and decision making processes related to the deployment of technologies and uh, around the environment. So speaking from my side, and I think then Joanna can jump with uh, more in depth the part of uh, technology discussion, but when we talk about the environment and this is the environment like talking about the environment is already kind of a frame but it's more about if we look on social environmental conflicts or how we we are defining our relationship to the, the nature to what we call nature like human and non-human and how we see different conflicts happening all over the world that go, goes like beyond climate change. Climate change is one part of that, but everything that, that we see as environmental degradation and our and, and degradation of people's lives in different parts of the world. So when we talk about it, when we see um, international like governance uh, bodies as the conference of the parties, that's happening also next month again in, in Glasgow, the COP26. So these spaces, they focus more on very specific parts of environmental degradation. And, uh, and there is an, an hegemonic narrative de describing how we can, for example, compensate the, the degradation, you know, how we can compensate environmental crimes that the the fact that we have rivers disappearing, forests disappearing, uh, social groups disappearing, whole territories, livelihoods, and through like different kinds of compensation, like planting trees is one of the favorite things, but very like kind of sexy, easy ways of um, finding a solution for the environment. And, and at the same time, even in, in groups that are more, more critic, that have a big a critic on that, so that want to discuss, no, we want to talk about social environmental conflicts, you know, we want to, to see what's behind. 
So what kind of structures, power structures are behind that? Uh, who are the ones that have power deciding that? Who are the ones sitting in the in the position of telling what kind of future we want to have, what kind of present and what kind of past we recognize? Um, even in these groups and in groups that talk about environmental justice, that is the, the main thing. Uh, there is a kind of excitement about technologies because technologies are seen like it can help us, you know, to, for example, track some, some things that are happening in the territory. So maybe using more drones or maybe ha having the internet in, everywhere, which is a human right, but how it's coming, you know, and so on. So there is a kind of, of celebration of tech without having a, a critical or a more critical lenses. And then ideas of techno-solutionism, they also become or are becoming quite popular among people discussing environmental justice. So, so talking about the... The, the environmental debates, th this was one part of the lack. And I think now Joana can talk about the other part and how we, we framed together. Yeah, I think it's like, <clears throat> uh, when you talk about tech, who, who's tech, who's profiting for that tech? What, is it actually a solution? The tech uh, industries use that term, solution 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 and it's like a magic solution using tech and we know the problems are more complex and the solution is multi-layered so it's not a technology that's going to solve uh social environmental conflicts and not even climate change um, so i think the article uh is trying to bring uh, to a critical view to to both narratives uh the green uh, economy narratives and the techno solutionist narratives uh and for doing that we are trying to merge a gap between the fields of digital rights the field of social environmental justice i think the field of digital rights uh with uh in which I've been immersed for more than that decades now uh, is starting to discuss um, climate change, not social environmental conflicts is already under this uh, framework of climate change that is important to discuss, but we need to see the bigger picture and is likely to enter the, the debate only discussion carbon discussing carbon emissions and that's exactly the framing that the tech companies are using uh, to enter the debate and position themselves as the problem solvers you know as the ones bringing the solutions not only for that field but also for across fields like working with companies and profiting a lot for that so we saw that uh, in the last years they were making a lot of promises to reduce emissions and entering that narrative with techno solutions narratives also promising uh solutions for other um uh, for for the whole planet for other economic fields and we need to have a critical view on that uh 
aren't we only if we fall for those narratives we are just um empowering those same monopolies that are causing the problem in which we are immersed uh, with. So bringing that critical view on green economy to digital rights uh, movements, bringing the critical view on technical solutionism to social environmental justice movements, I think was also behind on the, the goals of the article. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. Um, I recently had Paz Pena on, and we we discussed the paper that she also she wrote for the also the Global Inform Information Society Watch on the the ecological paradox of uh, digital economies. And in some sense, the the theme is related. Although uh, I feel we can we can get even deeper on on some of the the arguments we got into there. One thing, if that's okay, if you can sort of make it um, or just talk about it a bit more, because obviously this these are uh, a big part of, of the paper, as far as I can understand it, is that we need to approach technology critically, obviously, but also through this feminist lens. And one thing that I, I liked how Paspeña put it when, because I asked this sort of a similar question, was uh, she views it as very important to render visible the processes that pretend to be invisible in the sense of uh, technology isn't neutral, essentially. Um, can you sort of talk about this? Because I, I like some of the people that you that you uh, use, uh, you know, the concept of ghetto paradismo by the Aymara de colonial thinker, uh, Silvia Cusicanqui. So can you kind of bring that up a bit more if that's okay? So Paz, I work a lot with Paz and we work, uh, we are developing a project called Not My AI, which is exactly thinking about a, a feminist framework to question AI projects that are being uh, implemented by the public sector. And so going beyond just the human rights uh, lenses and have that uh, analysis of power dynamics. And I think, uh, so the, this vision, as I think it permeates many of the things that she writes, I write, and so on. And, um, and one of the writings that we had was also, and it, it connects with your question, was a discussion around consent, consent and, and power, consent to the terms of services, the privacy policies, uh, to, to use tech services and how this consent is empty of meaning because we are just clicking in a agree button without reading uh, those terms and uh, those privacy policies. And it's like one moment and the consent is forever and they can even change the terms and you have already consented. So the debate there was like, who, who, who has the ability to, to consent? Who, who has the ability to say no? If you don't have the ability to say no, and that is a term from uh, Sarah Ahmed, uh, you are actually not consenting. So transposing those thoughts to our article here and to the debate on 
on climate change on social environmental justice uh again what camilla was saying in the beginning who 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 has the power to decide those solutions to decide what is the solution you know and to push a particular solution that is actually uh just maintaining the status quo and that's the concept of gato pardismo that silvia kuzikanki uh uses is not her concept but uh, she she brings that concept uh to 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 her um context on discussing uh how governments respond to the needs of indigenous communities and she says that is proposing changes so that everything remains the same. Uh, so the, the, those changes are not modifying power structures. The, those changes on carbon emissions are necessary, but uh, if they're used just for greenwashing, it's just make up uh, in a bigger problem, which is restructuring uh, or changing the political economic model that humanity has taken is rethinking capitalism is rethinking uh ways of doing things but what we see is uh and i, I think camilla can speak better about this is what we see from those big tech companies is this uh proposition for a monoculture around technology a silicon valley culture around technology and why what we need is like a diversity a diverse model an alternative model and i'll pass it to camilla because i talked a lot already yeah i mean i'm thinking while listening <laughs> uh I've been working for some years in this in this concept of monocultures, and it's interesting to there's some some researchers and some activists talking a lot about how we can understand monocultures in a in a broader way. Vandana Shiva is one of the like the most well known uh, eco feminist. She identifies herself as a, an eco feminist, and she she understood like she started understanding the monocultures of mind and yeah so so connecting with what joana said i mean you also mentioned green economy and maybe it's interesting to it it's interesting to unfold a bit the concept of of green economy because this is the idea of understanding like this process of greening everything you know so for example now there are many there is one group of researchers and and activists that work together in brazil and i'm mentioning brazil because both come from brazil and our paper is also uh, also based a lot in in brazil bring some examples from brazil uh, there is one group that that is focused on social environmental justice and they are called carta de belém and they do an amazing work on unveiling the green economy. And they understand the green economy more or less as a way of like different names that came, this 
proliferation of names for things uh, with the with the aim of just you know uh, continue continuing the reproduction by capitalism like different forms of accumulation different forms of doing just the same not changing any kind of structure and what I'm what I, I mean by that is for for example the term of sustainable development and the, the basic critique on that is like what are we sustaining actually you know when we say sustainable development we are already saying we want to sustain development but what is development what kind of well in my case I even don't work with this the concept of of development anymore but what kind of development is there and and everything now for example there is the term of green data and what does it mean? Basically, some companies are bringing the green data with the idea of saying uh, there is no carbon emissions or they, they will compensate, for example, carbon uh, emissions by their uh, that are related to their to their to their businesses, you know, and then there are some some there's this promise of green data, but actually how can we just compensate you know like when we talk about compensating when we talk about Joanna was talking about consent and and about what kind of of um of system we want to live no we were, we were talking about a critique on, on capitalism so this does not uh, address the problems of you know like the um, for example, if okay, we need that everybody everybody has access to every kind of technology. Everybody has uh, should have access to internet as soon as possible. And but how this process would occur, and and towards what kind of thing? Usually, it's based in a in a in a this idea of of livelihood, of idea of a good life. And what is a good life? Basically, it's based on an Eurocentric, absolutely Eurocentric, white uh, idea of good life. So sh everybody should just live the maybe the the life we live in Germany. I don't know, you know, that this is the more or less the the path towards both the, the deployment of a lot of technology and the sustainable development ideas. Maybe it's interesting just to mention next year will be 50 years of the, the report Limits of the Growth. And Limits of the Growth is a very important reference in the debate of, on social environmental justice, but it is actually a very dominant hegemonic narrative. It was made by Club of Rome, and basically a group of researchers, but a lot of people coming from industry sectors. And since then, in, in 1972, they were trying to figure out how we could just keep development, just keep the path going, you know, and how even how technology could help, uh, like the environment, you know, not help us not to have big catastrophes, help us um, still live in this planet, but not changing structures. Basically, the idea was already this good life that everybody should have a kind of pattern of livelihood. And of course, we, we, are, we both agree 
on basic human rights. This we both agree on that on some patterns, but at the same time, there are many. It, we live in a very diverse world, but actually, most of the people, the majority of the world, do not have uh, space to to really decide what happened. And the majority in the majority of the world, livelihoods are actually disappearing. So ways of of dealing with non-human. Uh, spectrum and uh, ways of of social organization ways of farming all of these are are disappearing ways of having assemblies means of communication even all of that are are disappearing so so yeah i think we come back to the questions joanna already posed like who are sitting in this in these tables to to define what which is what is constant who are the ones that have the right to say no, no to the bodies, no, no to things that are going to happen in the territories, not just in the bodies. So who are the ones? We are addressing that, you know. I've mentioned this on this podcast a number of times on because I, I try and, and think and talk about degrowth as well. And as it happens earlier this year, the the European Environment Agency, which is the the, the body that advises the EU on on everything related to the environment, which the EU usually ignores. Even they basically said that uh, the title was growth without economic growth. And I had an entire conversation just yesterday, actually, with with two uh, experts. I think it's going to be the episode that comes out before this one, uh, Yefim and Julia, on the, the absurdity of a concept like growth without economic growth and how there is an obsession with even, even when the the actual environment, the actual European Environment Agency, using the data that it has at hand, acknowledges that basically economic growth cannot continue the way it's been continuing because of A, B, C, D, all of the data that they have. They still need to include growth in the title because of how, you know, the politics around that term works. And one of the reasons I wanted to to have you two on it as well in addition to everything that you've already said, is if it's okay to bring in a bit more the, the Brazilian example, which is a huge example. I know, obviously, we won't do it justice, but I haven't really done much on Brazil yet. I will at some point once I feel a bit more confident and you know did more research and so on. But a lot has happened in Brazil in the past few years alone. Uh, it tends to be underreported in the Anglophone world, I think it's fair to say. What can you tell us about your own research, your own experience um, to a non, primarily non-Brazilian audience that you feel would be useful for them to know, if that makes sense? Because then my, my idea is that I would, everything you mentioned, I'm going to write them down in, you know, in the description and the blog post and people who want to do more research can start doing that at least as a start. I'm thinking if I start from the bad part or the good part, not that I really see these divisions so clearly, but I'll start with some good things because we are talking, yeah. I mean, uh, Brazil is one of the most diverse countries in, in the world. So, so and for that, usually people start talking about biodiversity, you know. For example, a very concrete thing, I came to Germany and I remember the first time I was going to talk about Brazil and the person that invited me, invites me to a room just before entering the, the, the big room with a, a big audience and said, 
you know, it's fine. Did you bring some pictures about uh, pictures of the forest? Because people, they, they just want to see the forest. And then I just went to another room and I got all the all the photos I had from forest because I was like, okay, I can't, you know, it's very hard to deal with European audiences being in a Latin American room. But what I want to say with that is that I'm not just talking about uh, biodiversity in terms of species and non-human. I'm talking basically about a lot of people that are taking care, like since big, before the colonization of, of Brazil, are, are not just taking care, but living in different ways. So, so we are talking about a territory which uh, was colonized and this structures a lot our society in many terms, but which is, uh, it's still a home for many ways of living, you know, like traditional communities, a lot of traditional communities living in Brazil, but not just that, in different regions, we just have um, many ways uh, on this relationship between people and nature, just to be more like uh, simple on that. So this is Brazil. And there's a lot of the like social movements are also very strong in Brazil. And I think this is also important to mention. Social environmental justice movement movements are, are, are huge. And Brazil has also one of the biggest uh, movements of landless people, which tells a lot because land rights are are the, the base. Are, we, we can't talk about social environmental conflicts and justice in a more in, in a more structural sense without talking about land rights. And I think Brazil is a big case. Okay, so this is one part, and, and, and feminist movements are also like huge in Brazil and very diverse and in all Latin America. That's why we don't talk about feminist, but or feminism. It's really about feminisms. And yeah. Um, on the other hand, then I have to mention the 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 more difficult part. I mean, Brazil is also one of the main battlefields of environmental conflicts. We in this uh, we mentioned the atlas of atlas de conflitos socioterritoriais panamazonico. The data are the data on that of to 2018. Probably now they're going to be more recent data and. But there was they registered a thousand, almost a thousand cases, nine nine hundred ninety-five, uh, just in the Amazon region. And this is the Amazon is the most popular region. Everybody talks about the Amazon, the lungs of the world, and so on. But we have different kinds of biomes in different uh, in different in, in Brazil. And so the battlefields are also big in Cerrado, you know, and and in other regions. And at the same time, because we live in, in such a huge diversity, in such a huge alive, you know, uh, environment, we also have many people like uh, environment, human rights defenders that are at risk. So this is the second part. There are a lot of people trying to denounce you know, trying to engage in the political debate, trying to point the finger to like corporations, for example, that are making a mess and also the government and so on. And those people have their like life threatened 
different kinds of persecutions and so on. Um, yeah, <laughs> and at the same time in the research field, uh, and, and also in, in communications. I'm talking about that because I'm in between as a journalist, researcher, and an activist. We also have, yeah, it's we, we have a lot of people investigating and trying to connect, a lot of articulations going on. And at the same time, one of the most difficult extreme right government in the region. So this is, I'll, I'll stop here because I already talked a lot, so Joana can jump in, but it's kind of a very uh, complex and fruitful territory, what we are talking about. Thanks. Before, just Joana, before quickly, I, the reason why I'm also asking is because from my vantage point, as I mostly consume Anglophone media, uh, I'm Spanish and French a bit as well, but it's kind of the same problem as far as I can tell. It, it's, it focuses a lot on sort of the big, uh, quote-unquote, big names, obviously Bolsonaro, and everything gets filtered through that to the, to the extent that what, gets hap what happens on the ground, and that's kind of a general point, usually doesn't get reported as much. And so even, you know, mentioning 995 cases, those are not the sort of statistics that I, I usually see. I have seen a bit better report. I'm going to say there's some good new, good developments happening in, in some journalist circles, but definitely not to the extent that's needed. So that, that's sort of what I had in mind when, when I asked that question. Uh, sorry, Joanna. So just uh, before I pass to Joanna, because then mm -hmm. she can uh, really dive into it. Um, that's why, exactly that's why we decided to do this text. You know, mm. one of the reasons because when we see the the companies bringing their narratives, the big tech, they want yeah. they want to say they have this excitement also towards the environment. You know, like they want yes. to go to the COP twenty six and show everything they have as the salvation of the world. Blah blah blah. They really want to show, and at the same time, so if you see the environmental reports that they show you won't find this, this kind of data. That's why we were looking for the conflict uh, minerals uh, report. Th these reports, you never see someone mentioning in one of their talks, you know? It's really not very uh, launched. It's not very well addressed. That's why we, we did that and we went through the, the, the cases in Brazil, the, the, the case of the, the Pichinga mining, for example, that we, we know that there, that's a, there is a lot still to be investigated, to be, you know, researched, like to, to broaden the thing. But we just, we started making this connection on, on, on environmental, social environmental conflicts that are registered. And so where do these companies, what kind of, like what's part of their chains of production, you know, and what kind of minerals? So we can really better make, we can make the connections better from, and, and, and to show it's not just a, a virtual thing like the, the the technology is something very structural and very concrete and then for sure Joana can talk a lot about it yeah today i, I woke up and i checked the the news and there was this report published at communications earth and environment which is a, uh, a publication from the group of uh, nature magazine and it was released today stressing this process of savanization of the Amazon. Does it 
uh, is it in proper English? So Amazon like, turning into a into savanna. A, into a savanna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and stressing that that process that's already ongoing is gonna lead to six million people living in a extreme thermic risk uh, that presents a risk to health problems. You know? And then one of the highlights of the that one of the things that I highlighted from the article was the researchers saying when you are under 40 degrees Celsius in the shadow, uh, when it's 40 degrees Celsius in the shadow, where do you go? Where are you going to hide? It's not 40 degrees Celsius under the sun. Uh, and that's a result of carbon emissions, but also of deforestation, but also a, a result of mining, a result of um, uh, the, the, what's the word, forgot the word, but the agro, agro-business in Brazil and result of the politics that Bolsonaro has been imposing dismantling um, environmental protections, but also a result of how the world is not only Brazil, is destroying the Amazon. And I think that is one of the examples of how this happens is through the case that we brought in the report of, um, as Camila was saying, instead of looking to the tech, big tech promises of zero carbon emissions, we digged into the conflict minerals report from Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. And we were looking, we decided to look, okay, what are the minerals that are, they are extracting from Brazil? Uh, and we found that we many, they had many suppliers in Brazil, uh, particularly in the Amazon region, but also in Minas Gerais. And then we started to focus, okay, let's dig a little bit uh, in, uh, in the providers. So we found that Minera Santa Boca, one of the providers operating Mina de Pichinga, Pichinga mine in the Amazon region to, to extract tantalum. Uh, and, and we found out that Brazil has one of the, has 51% of the world's tantalum deposit, which is key for uh, electronic in, uh, industry. And then digging a bit deeper, oh, actually not even too deep, we just Google Pitinga mine on, on Google Earth. And then we saw that it was a huge spot of the forestation right in the middle of the Amazon. And then digging then a, a little bit uh, deeper, we started to find uh, reports on environmental conflict, social environmental conflict uh, around that particular mining. Uh, and in one report from Instituto Socioambiental, ISA, uh, we, we had some data that the company 
was conducting mining in indigenous lands of the Aymiri Atroari to extract also caseterita tin. That's the basis for tin, also for the electronic industry. Uh, so there is a lot uh, of conflicts to be untangled, a lot of light to be shed uh, uh, in, in the whole production chain that is not only focused on carbon emissions, but uh, focusing on not only the, the circle economy, but focusing on, uh, again, whose lives are being destroyed um, for Google to be able to extract things that they need to, minerals that they need to, and then bring us with the solutions that will not solve anything, and but maybe have destroyed alternative uh, ways of living from the place uh, that this mining, these minerals have been extracted. So the report was an attempt to point to the whole picture with that example. And I'm sure there will be many more. We just managed to dig on one of the whole uh, suppliers. Joana mentioned we, because what we, we didn't, we, we also compared when we found the, the the companies that were part of the production chain uh, of Alphabet, we we then compared with there is some there are some data kind of uh, map kind of mapping efforts that are quite recent on like to the effort on mapping social environmental conflicts. So one of them is in the University of Barcelona, uh, Autonomous University of Barcelona, in the ICTA. And it's a it's an effort coordinated by the professor Martinez Alier, but they do they are they have the biggest data right now, like biggest how do you say repository? Yeah, the biggest repository on uh, about env social environmental conflict. So what what we did was also to compare, and then some some places the the case of mine the the Pichinga was there, so it was already considered already categorized as a, as a, a social environmental conflict. And I'm saying that because, you know, the companies are also know that it's already, if, if, if we know, <laughs> they also know, they are also being questioned about that. Some companies, for example, I had as a journalist, like I had some companies talking to me, asking why, because I mentioned, you know, the, this data, so why, what, the, do, do, what does it mean to be an environmental conflict that they are trying to lead, they are trying to deal with that? I had that from a mine company, for example, but they do not speak loud about it. It's not in the public debate. What, what we, we are trying is to, to push it, that like our aims that people can use as a lens but to, to push this debate, not just what the companies want to talk about, what's green, but what's behind, as Joana already, already said. Um, one thing that, like the last section of the paper, uh, you call it from extractivism to, to data colonialism, and then you say AI will not save the world. For those who don't know, how, how would you explain uh, what data colonialism is? Uh, is the example of Google basically, I mean, you can use that as an example maybe, but, and what like as if 
linked question like what would a decolonial approach look like to to data if that makes sense the, the examples that we just mentioned are about data and we of course we want data we want data about more data about social environmental conflicts that are happening through, throughout the whole production chain we want that data to be uh out in the open not first like be digging it was very interesting that that report on conflict miners was in a session of, uh, of a website for investors not in a session for consumers so of course we want data we want data that expose power relations that expose uh who, who is vulnerabilized by those big companies practices but what we have on the big data narrative, AI narratives, AI will solve the world narratives, are data is a tool for concentrating even more power. So tech companies were collecting a lot of data about us, about our bodies, about our minds, and now they are shifting or expanding the business models to collect. Not now, it's been happening, you know, we have Google Maps all over, but to connect even more data about territories and that will give them more power, uh, more monopolies. Mm -hmm. So Paola Ricaurte, our colleague, a feminist colleague and also researcher, brilliant academic and researcher, uh, have many articles pointing out how those uh, data extractivist approaches to human problems are a form of neocolonialism, no? because we have uh, data center economies fostering not a change again the gato persismo but fostering extractivist models of uh, resource exploitation that goes to uh, uh, exploiting minerals exploiting data from that territory then exploiting data from the bodies of the people and then sending selling it back to us as solution labeling labeling it as solution and we have seen um, what happened when tech companies promise us that they are the saviors of something. They were the saviors. They have promised us that they were going to be the saviors of democracy. And look where we are now. Uh, with them profiting a lot of ha with hate, with misinformation, because those things give them clicks no we, we point out in the report of facebook while it promises all those zero emissions uh targets it also is profiting a lot of uh, misinformation ads that are climate denialist ads so uh this this logic that as Soshana Zubrov points as uh surveillance capitalism in, 
in which surveillance uh, beyond operating as a tool for control is also feeding capitalism. And those companies are the ones who are profiting from the logic of surveillance capitalism are becoming more powerful than uh, states and richest than big oil companies also. And it's spreading, it's spreading their business models across all the fields of life under the data, big data narratives. I can add, I think Joanna already. Um, sure, if you want to. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but yeah, I think uh, when we talk about the colonial feminist approach and like data colonialism, in this case, we, we also just have to remember that it, we are talking about colonialism, like new forms of colonialism. So basically, it's the same, the, the, it's the same structure. So hierarchies of bodies. People like we are in, in the pandemic, I think it's a very um, key moment in this deployment of technologies in the, the more like intimate parts of our lives, our relationships, distant relationships and all the kinds of, of contact or like even with your doctor. Now, depending on the situation, you maybe use or you, in some places you can use you know, your cell phone or, or something, but maybe you don't have, or maybe your internet's not enough for that. Or maybe you, are, you even don't have a doctor, you know, because in your region, the doctor won't arrive because of the circumstances. I think all of that talks a lot about how we are, how we jump in some structures. So how we are invited to participate or like we are imposed to participate in capitalist dynamics, but we just occupy different positions in that. And uh, so when we talk about that, we are, yeah, we are talking about colonial ways of accessing more people and more territories because the companies, they need more territories in order to have raw material. That's how they look. The, uh, that, that's how many companies look to the places as raw material, not people living and um yeah and we talk about feminist perspectives i think this is also just important to add it's our lenses to understand power relations we are not talking about women or like just the uh, gender in in this sense but we are talking in a broader way of understanding power relations like what's behind if we yeah so even uh, when we, we talking about internet we mentioned in the in the in the article angela merkel when she says in the in the last internet governance forum that was presential in 2019 and we both were there and she says that she she talks about this slogan this slogan was one internet one vision one world something like that and i'm not sure about the 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 order but you know, one vision, one, this idea of one, this one is again, this uh, male, white, European person and the person who has access to, to everything. And then can, of course, have a kind of a role on, and, and, and can participate in decisions, in more decision-making processes. So yeah, I just wanted to add that we are connecting colonialism um, and you know, 
unveiling colonialism, techno-solutionisms, and, and green, green economies. One is so boring if it's just one. Yeah, it's very simplistic. <laughs> well, um, I know uh, you have to go soon. So I guess what we can do is uh, just the book section in which I just ask you uh, sort of like to wrap up. And obviously, if you want to add certain thoughts, why, you know, feel free to do it as you want. What are three books that you would recommend? Um, and or I should say also like, you know, some people have recommended music or movies, you know, basically anything. And to listeners and why, if you can talk about them a bit. I recommend a book that I'm reading. It's, can I recommend? It's, it's in Portuguese. I don't know if... Yeah, yeah, you can, it. of course. <laughs> it's called The Extinction of the Beasts. And it's by Natalia Borges Polezo. Uh, it just won the Jabuti Prize, which is a prize in literature here in, in Brazil. And it says it's a deep uh, dive into solitude, a brutal history about a woman, a cat, and a world in collapse. And it shows actually how one is boring and solitude can be. Uh, sad but what I like about this book is that the way she brings the narratives that could be seen as it's, it's a fiction but uh, it's it sometimes looks like an autobiographical book she's a lesbian uh, character that it's watching also the social environmental conflicts going on and it's described as it fits in a diary from today but it has some aspects of speculative future and sci-fi uh, fiction but the it it's a sci-fi that's not so far in the future and it sounds very realistic and reading to her is like uh, listening to a friend talking and it, it intertwines a lot of crises that human beings are passing through uh, with this context of pandemic, solitude, uh, social environmental uh, climate, uh, conflicts, climate change, so on. So I've been enjoying a lot. Amazing, thanks. I hope they translate it into English at some point. Or <laughs> I, I can read Spanish, maybe in Spanish one day. Uh, maybe as she got the prize and she's becoming a bit famous, maybe that would be a translation. Okay. Well, Camila, I don't know if you want to recommend anything. I'm, I'm going to recommend what comes to my mind because I didn't think uh, a lot before, but I mean, uh, we, we mentioned Silvia Kusikanki in uh, one text from her, but she has a, a book called uh, Un Mundo Si Es Possible. I don't know if there is an English translation, but like for Spanish and Portuguese readers, I know that there is, uh, like listeners. Yeah, it comes to my mind also... 
mm, let's say many things. I think I think it's also good. Okay, one choreographer, a dance piece from Amanda Pina. She's amazing. She also talks about amazing stuff like their videos and so on. So it's uh, a nice um choreographer that talks about uh, mining processes and she's uh, addressing her own territory uh, in the Andes in Latin America that is impacted by Anglo America American it's a mining company a huge one doing a lot of mess in many territories yeah and I think it's good just to to follow social movements. I mean, I, I invite also people to maybe uh, to know a bit about. Uh, I'm part of a collective called Intervozes in Brazil. We address um, democratization of communication, but also in connection with environmental struggles, social environmental struggles. Uh, the articulation of agroecology in Brazil, in specifically also the, the the work many women are doing. So you can find zines, you can find videos, re medicinal recipes, this kind of stuff. So many different things. Uh, the landless movement from Brazil. I mean, many social movements can just teach us so much and, and so many there are so many struggles. So this, this is what comes to my mind right now. Amazing. Thanks a lot. Uh, well, I mean, on that note, um, Kimin and Joanna, thanks a lot for your time. This has really been amazing. And um, the way I usually do things is I'm going to obviously re-listen to, to the episode and all of the notes that we mentioned, I will include them in the blog post and in, in the description for, for listeners if they want to look up like more things and stuff. So um, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.
Fire These Times is made possible by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support through a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com slash fire these times. If you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website.